0: Thanks Abel for leading us this morning. Tyler is out of town and he was running a tough mudder yesterday and I didn't see any pictures online if he made it or didn't make it. So some nods that he made it, I'll believe it when I see video proof or pictures that he made it to the finish line. This is week four in our Sunday morning series called Little G Gods. We're talking about idolatry and how it Uh, is part of our lives in ways that we may not expect it to be part of our lives. We all think of idolatry as people bowing down to statues, but the Bible says there's a little bit more to it than that. And so the first week we just talked about idolatry generally, trying to think about uh, areas where it may be present in our hearts and in our lives. The last couple weeks we've looked at specific issues that may be idols in our lives. We've talked about love and we've talked about children. And this morning, we're going to talk about one that is certainly an issue in the country we live in and in the times we live in. We're going to talk about money. There are some notes in the outline. If you'd like to follow along with the, the sermon and the notes, you can do that. Many of you remember 2008 and 2009, and you remember the economic conditions of those years. Economists look back and call that the Great Recession, and we didn't live here during the Great Recession, but my guess is if you had an oil field-related job during those years, you remember those years well, and you may have lost your oil field-related job during those years as the price went down. Brooke and I were living in Kentucky, and it was an area that was hit hard by the Great Recession, and we were unfortunate enough to buy our very first house about three months before the housing bubble popped. And so a few years later, when we tried to sell that house, we didn't exactly make money on it, and we remember that well. In addition to our personal experiences during that time, you may remember there were multiple high-profile suicides during those years, and I'll just mention a few. The CFO of Freddie Mac, mortgage lending company, hanged himself in his basement, the CEO of one of the leading real estate auction firms shot himself behind the wheel of his red jaguar. There was a French money manager who lost 1.4 million excuse me, 1.4 billion dollars in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrists and died in his corner office. There was a Danish senior executive whose bank was bought by J.P. Morgan Chase in a, uh, an acquisition, and he was not hired. And so when they took over his failed firm, he overdosed on drugs and jumped off the 29th floor of his office building. And I could go on and on and on about people who experienced that financial crisis and their whole world came crashing down because the focus and the center of their entire life and entire existence was money. And when the economy tanked, they had absolutely nothing underneath their feet. Your, may, your experience may not have been that dramatic. I hope that it wasn't. But I also know that money is an issue for us in this country. It's something that we look to for security. It's something that we look to to make us happy. It's something that we always sort of chase after. It's something built into the fabric of the United States and the idea of the American dream of you can achieve. You can can have. You can earn. If you will do these things, we're taught from a very young age, then you can be prosperous. And prosperity is always put out there in front of us as something that we should just chase without ever questioning it. When you chase money, you learn what we've said about little G-gods almost every week now, they always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. If you put money at the center of your life, it will disappoint you, it will not bring the deliverance that you think it will, and it will bring destruction into your life. This is nothing new, okay? Way back in the 1830s, so we're going way back in American history, there was a French scholar named Alexis de Tocqueville, and he visited the United States, and he traveled around, and he went back to France, and he wrote a book about his experience here, and this was one of his observations. He had many positive things to say about the United States. He was all in on the United States, but this is what he said. He said, there's a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. So way back in 1830, he comes to this country and he looks around and he says, these people have more than anyone. They have an abundance. They're prosperous people and yet they're haunted by just this strange melancholy as if they just can't enjoy what they have or they don't think that they have enough. There's just something off. As a culture, we should have seen this coming. People from outside of our culture have seen it coming. I I mentioned Tocqueville. Many of you have heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, and you remember Nietzsche for his famous quote, God is dead, but he also said this. He predicted that Western culture would soon replace the God, quote-unquote, God of the Bible, with the God of money. Writing again in the 1800s, as an outsider to our culture, Looking in from a a third party perspective, saying in the 1800s, you know what? These people pay pretty good lip service to the God of the Bible right now, but give them some time and their allegiance will shift and they'll follow the God of money. Nietzsche didn't make this up. The Apostle Paul said it long before Nietzsche did. He said, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Here it is lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. And You look at all those descriptions, whether it's the Apostle Paul, whether it's Nietzsche's prediction, or whether it's Tocqueville's description of the United States, and you look at our culture and you say, we live in a place that loves money, where life just tends to revolve around money. And I need to remember and you need to remember that it will always disappoint us as a God. It will always bring destruction into our life and it cannot, can not deliver us. I want to give you a few signs that maybe this is an issue for you. That money is a little g God in your life. Just four suggestions and you're going to really like the first one. Money may be a little g-god in your life if you really don't think greed is an issue in your life. If you really sit here this morning and say, this is not something I struggle with, it may be something you struggle with. Polls suggest, get this number, 2% of Americans self-identify as wealthy. Okay, 2% of the people in this country look at what they have and say, They're rich. And you understand the rest of the world hears that statistic and looks at us, me and you, and they laugh or they cry or they get angry or they think we're bonkers or some combination of all of it. We are wealthy. We look around and we can always find somebody who has a little bit more than you. And so it's easy to put yourself in the 98% of Americans who say, I don't have a lot. I'm not wealthy. I'm not well off. I I don't have a lot of money. Just understand the rest of the world looks at me and you and says, you do have a lot. You are wealthy. You have been blessed. And if you're blind to that reality, this may be an issue in your life. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you for the fact that you were born in the United States of America. God caused you to be born exactly where he wanted you to be born. It's not an accident of history. It's not something you need to have a guilt complex over. You just need to be aware of the fact that if you were born in this country, you are wealthy. And this is something that needs to be on your radar. Number two, you constantly compare your stuff to other people's stuff. So if you play the game of keeping up with the Joneses or the whoever's, this is an issue for you. And you need to be reminded that envy and coveting what other people have made God's top ten list. Exodus 20, 17. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't want what he or she has. Be content with what God has given you. Number three, you constantly worry about money or possessions. You worry about money or possessions. My guess is that this is the kind of sermon, and I'm making this guess because I know my own heart. My guess is that this is the kind of sermon you listen to and you're tempted to think, man, I know somebody that really should listen to this. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna write down the link to the podcast and put it on my boss's desk and maybe he could listen to this. Or I'm gonna take this to my neighbor and like, you know, slip it under the door, you know, the, the notes from the, the, the sermon outline and, and slip it to him. Or I, I've got an uncle. A hey man, I really wish that he would listen to this. But you're like me. There's come, come there comes times in your life where you do worry about job and Money and retirement and bills. We're prone to worry about those things, and Jesus knows we're prone to worry about them. And so, in one of his most famous sermons, he takes an extended part of the sermon where he talks about all sorts of important things, just almost in shotgun style, just one issue after another anger and lust and watching your mouth and spiritual disciplines. And then he just slows down and he says, Let me talk to you about money. I don't want you to be anxious. Don't worry. The birds, don't worry. The flowers, don't worry. God knows the hairs on your head. He knows what you need. He will provide for everything that you need. The Gentiles worry about all of those things. Don't be like the Gentiles. Seek the kingdom. Seek the righteousness of God. And all of these other things will be added to you. But don't worry And if you find yourselves worrying, then this may be an issue that you need to deal with. Last, you believe money and possessions will make you happy. And at this point in the series, four weeks in, you know that nothing but God will make you happy. But the reality is you and I are a lot more like John Rockefeller than we'd like to admit. Rockefeller was a founder of the Standard Oil Company. He grew it to be this incredible, huge, massive business. He was the first man in American history to be worth a billion dollars. If you adjust his wealth for inflation, he's by far the richest person that's ever lived. And you know the famous story. Someone sat down with him and said, how much money do you need? How much is enough? And his answer was, a little bit more. Just a little more. It's the richest man on earth. How much do you need? I just need a little more. That's true for you and me. We're prone to think that way. Most of us don't set our sights on just being super wealthy, ultra wealthy, John Rockefeller wealthy. We just think if I could get one more raise, if I could just, if I could just pay off one of these bills if I could just sort of get one step up financially, just a little bit more, and you're like me, we get there, that one leg up, that next raise, that next bill paid off, and we think, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So this morning we're going to talk about a man who worshipped money, and it's somebody that you're familiar with. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it to Luke 19. We're going to talk about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I'm not going to sing the song for you this morning, but we're going to read through it in Matthew 19, and we're just going to break it up into three sections. We're going to look at the first two verses and then talk a little bit, and then we're going to look at the middle of the story and talk a little bit, and then we'll look at the end, uh, the last two two or three verses, and we'll talk a little bit there. So look in your Bible at Luke 19, verse 1 and 2. It says, He is talking about Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So Luke just very casually introduces us to a man named Zacchaeus and he says that he was a chief tax collector. Now, in our culture if you work for the IRS you probably don't go around telling people that as soon as you meet them. It's not sort of a thing that we uh, get excited about, meeting the tax man or being friends with the tax man. In fact, even just the word IRS or the letters IRS just sort of have a negative connotation. It's not something that we would necessarily just be overly excited about. But in Zacchaeus's day, things were even worse than that. The, the connotation of tax collector was worse than it is in our day. Zacchaeus lived in an occupied country, which I really don't know as Americans if we can even fathom what that meant and how that affected their, their worldview and the way that they thought through life. But they lived in an occupied country. Rome had conquered them, and Rome was in control. Rome was the boss, period, end of story. There was no questioning that. Rome was known for levying oppressive, heavy taxes on all of the kingdoms that they conquered, all of the, the peoples that they conquered. And this did two things. It kept the people that they had conquered poor, It's hard to to raise up in rebellion when you don't have anything. And it kept the capital, Rome, and all the aristocrats wealthy. So they're levying these taxes. They're living off of these taxes. And they work in collaboration with tax collectors. And the job of a tax collector was basically to go around to your neighbors, the people you lived with, to levy the taxes that Rome required, and then to take those back to Rome. The only way you can sort of try to wrap your, your mind around how much people hated tax collectors is to think about what that would be like in our context. So just sort of go down this road and think with me. Imagine that China attacks the United States. They send the whole fleet across the Pacific. They invade California. They don't stop at California. They roll all the way through the United States. They take over our country west to east, north to south, all of it. China occupies our country and then they put taxes on me and you those taxes don't go to help things here they don't go to make our life better in any way shape or form they go across the sea to Beijing and to collect those taxes from people like you and me they find people like you and me who will work for them So imagine your neighbor or maybe look next to you on the pew and think about the person sitting next to you working for Beijing, collecting taxes from you to send that money across the Pacific to build buildings in China, to pay the president of China so that the aristocrats in China can live high on the hog while we suffer here. That was the situation. It was even worse for Zacchaeus because if you look in verse 2, it says he was a chief tax collector. Basically what Luke is saying to you is this guy was the mob boss. He wasn't the low-level guy that probably went door to door knocking on your door and collecting your money. He was the guy that led all the other tax collectors. He led the whole racket. Think about the compromises that Zacchaeus made to take this job. He agreed to betray his people, his ethnic group. He agreed to betray his nation to support an occupying nation. He agreed to turn on his family because at this point, you're a total outcast in society and so your family didn't want to have anything to do with you. He had turned on his friends and people who cared about him. All of these relationships he's betrayed, why? It's all for money. And you understand the racket that the tax collectors ran. You need to collect X amount of taxes for Rome. If you can get more than that, good for you. Keep it. Take as much as you want as long as we get our cut. You say, well, how did a a wee little man like Zacchaeus do that? How did he extort people for money? Well, he had the backing of the Roman military. To cross Zacchaeus was to cross Rome. If you didn't pay Zacchaeus, it was akin to not paying Caesar. And so when he knocks on your door or he sends someone to knock on your door, you pay. And everyone knows in Jericho, Zacchaeus is the guy running the whole racket. He's the mob boss. He's the guy in charge of the whole thing. He's the one taking out of our pockets to send it to those people who conquered us, and he's betrayed us in the process. He sacrificed his heritage, his faith, his family, all for money. Now look at verse 3. He, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see Jesus, to see who Jesus was. But on, on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. There's a couple of things I want you to see here. One The Bible says, Luke tells us that he was a wee little man, small in stature, and then he climbs a tree to see Jesus. You and I read that detail. We really don't think anything about it, but it's a a detail that ought to stand out to us. It would have stood out to the Jewish audience, just like if you've read Luke 15, When Jesus says there's a father waiting on his son to return and he sees him while he's a long ways off and the father runs to the son. We read that and we say, well, of course, he missed him. But in Jewish culture, you didn't do that. Grown men did not run. They walked. And to see a grown man run would be about the equivalent of going to a sporting event and they get you on the dance cam and you see some grown man get up on the dance cam and just make a fool of himself, you know? And everyone in the arena just sort of looks at him and says, Oh, man, what a goober. What a goober. Look at that guy. He has no pride. He doesn't care who's looking. That's so embarrassing. And they saw that father run, and everybody thought, Oh, my lands. Can you believe he is running? Jewish men did not run. Grown Jewish men did not climb trees. So I just want you to have in your mind the idea... That as Zacchaeus climbs the tree, as the wee little man gets up in the tree, this is funny and amusing on multiple levels. Okay, One, everybody knows he's short, and they know he's the chief tax collector, and they all hate him, so you know they've been making short jokes for years. Behind his back, but you know they've been making short jokes. Now he gets up in the tree, which was funny because he was short and he couldn't see, but it was also just embarrassing for a grown man to get up in a tree. So just picture this scene, Jesus is coming in and there's sort of a crowd gathering and everyone's got their head on a swivel. Who do you look at? Do you look at Jesus because he's the main attraction or do you look at the goofy guy up in a tree because that's not something you saw every day and so everyone's sort of back and forth, back and forth, wanting to see Jesus, interested in this prophet, this teacher, this miracle worker, but also highly amused that Zacchaeus has climbed this tree And Jesus walks up to him, and I want you to notice a couple of things. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house today. He walks past all the self-righteous sinners who think they're better than Zacchaeus. And he laser beams in and he focuses in on Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the one that everyone else knew was a sinner. And he says, I must go to your house today. He's inviting himself over, which is something we don't do in our culture, but in Zacchaeus' culture, in Jesus' culture, it was clear. Jesus was saying, I need to be friends with you. I want to be your friend, and I'm coming over to your house. Two things you need to see about Zacchaeus. One, he's not approaching Jesus on the basis of his dignity or his money. He has shamed himself to get up in the tree. Secondly, Zacchaeus does not invite Jesus to his house. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus's life. And that's the way it always works with grace. The Bible says none of us are out seeking God, but God in his grace is seeking people to save. And Jesus is seeking this man in particular, and he walks right up to him, ignoring everyone in this crowd, and he says, you, I must go to your house today. It's not really asking him. He's just telling him, get down out of the tree. We're going to your house and you and I are going to be friends. And right there is the wee little guy Zacchaeus sits up in the tree and he looks down at Jesus. Grace is planted in his heart. Jesus sought him out. Zacchaeus is just up in the tree trying to see what's going on. And Jesus is the one who seeks him out and initiates this relationship. And he says, I'm coming To your house, he's saying to him, I want to be your friend. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As he welcomes Jesus in his home, he makes two promises. The first promise is, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. Half of what I have. The Old Testament law said you had to give one-tenth. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half. I want you to understand this is what happens when God's grace gets a hold of your life. Some of you go through life and all you care about is what is the bare minimum that God requires of me. What is the lowest hurdle that I have to jump over in order for God to be happy with me? And if that's you, I'm suggesting to you that you haven't truly experienced God's grace in your life. Because when God's grace gets a hold of a person and when God's grace changes a person, when he takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, we're like Zacchaeus. We're not sitting back saying, okay, what's the bare minimum that you're looking for? But we go way over and above it. And you see the same thing in the second promise that Zacchaeus made. He said, if I have defrauded anyone, I'll restore it fourfold. You can go back in the Old Testament. I, I just looked up some references this week. Leviticus 15.6 and Numbers 5.7 both talk to the thief who's trying to make restitution. I'll give you those verses again. You can look them up. Leviticus 15.6, Numbers 5.7. And both of those passages say if you've stolen and you get caught, you got to pay it all back plus a fifth. 20%. And what does Zacchaeus say? look, I'm going to pay it all back. I'm going to make it right four times over. He's going way over and above the bare minimum of what the Old Testament law required of him. And he's, maybe he's got some of his tax collector's buddies whispering in his ear saying, hey, hey, hey oh, hold on, hold on, on before you throw that four times out, all you got to give is 20% extra. You don't have to do the fourfold. But that's not his concern. He's experienced God's grace in his life And now he's not looking for the minimum that he's got to leap over for God to be pleased with him, but God's grace is now overflowing from his heart to the lives of other people. So he makes these two promises, and what does Jesus say in response? He says, salvation has come to this house. Not salvation will come when you pay these debts, not salvation will come when you get square with everybody you robbed from, but he says, it has come. And here's a principle you've got to understand when you look at the life of Zacchaeus. A changed life cannot, cannot, it doesn't have the ability to merit salvation. But salvation always results in a changed life. This is not Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, you need to pay your way with me, and once you pay these debts, then you'll be in. This is Jesus saying, God's grace has totally changed you from the inside now out. Salvation has already come to this house. And the evidence of it, the fruit of it, is this changed life in Zacchaeus. So what was Jesus teaching Zacchaeus and what is he teaching us? Just a few simple thoughts and we'll be done. Number one, no one can serve two masters. That's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says you can love money or you can love God, but you can't love both. You can't serve both. And for Zacchaeus, this was the central issue of his life. Are you going to serve God and follow God and trust God and obey God? Or are you going to love, trust, and obey money? You can't have two masters. For you, it may be money. For you, this reminder may make you go back and think about children, or it may make you go back last week and think about love. It may go back and make you think of some other idol in your life, but you can only serve one master. You cannot have Two masters. Secondly, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is one of those Bible verses that we misquote all the time, and we say, money is the root of all evil. That's not at all what Paul said. He said, loving money, in parentheses you understand he's saying, making money your God is the root of all kinds of other evil things. And I hope you can see how this played out in Zacchaeus' life. Here's a man who committed a thousand other sins because he got off base on this one foundational issue of making money as God. He makes money more important than anything else, and at that point in his life, he's willing to do whatever it takes to get more money. If he needs to lie, he'll lie. If he needs to cheat, he'll cheat. If he needs to betray people close to him, he'll betray them. If he needs to turn his back on his faith and his heritage, he'll gladly do it. It led to a thousand other sins in his life. And you need to understand in your life, if you look at this story and you think about idolatry and you think about money and you say, you know what? I know this is an issue for me. Rest assured, if you leave it unchecked, it will lead to a thousand other sins in your life. You will hurt people, you will lie to people. You will try to deceive people and cheat people. A thousand other sins will come in your life if you get this one wrong. Here's the flip side of number two is number three. Jesus wants to deal with the idols beneath our greed. Really what I'm trying to get you to think about here is why is it that Zacchaeus wanted money? What was the issue underneath that? Was it that he wanted control over his life? Was it that he just wanted to be comfortable and secure? Was it that he wanted to have a nice retirement someday? It, it was, it's likely that he didn't want money just to have the pile of the money. He wanted the money so he could do something with the money. And if greed is an issue in your life, if money is an idol in your life, you need to stop and think about, why do I want it so much? Why am I willing to commit a thousand other sins to get it? Is it that I want to have the illusion that I'm in control of my life and money will make me feel like I have control? Is it that I just want what other people have and I'm angry that God hasn't given it to me and so I think more money can help me get more stuff? Is it just the the allure of being comfortable and not having to trust God for my daily needs. And I, I just want money so that I can just be comfortably middle class. And that's the most important thing to you. But if money is your idol, there's something in your heart underneath that that you need to deal with. Number four, Jesus is trying to teach Zacchaeus clearly that he came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19 and Uh, 19.10 is one of our favorite verses. We talked about it every Sunday when we worked through the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He did not just come to make us nice, better, moral people. He came to save us from our idolatries. He came to give His life as a ransom for our wickedness. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And you look at the book of Philippians, Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that our becoming rich, our having salvation came at the expense of Jesus becoming poor, humbling himself, becoming nothing, taking the form of a servant so that we could have everything. Number five, our salvation should result in generosity. Generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 9. I'll just read it to you quickly. Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You can go back and look at 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is asking that church point blank to open up their wallets and to give to missions. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians. He's begging them. He's appealing to them. He's even trying to lay a little bit of a guilt trip on them to give, saying, These other guys are giving. You need to give. And at the heart of all of it, he just reminds them of the gospel and he says, Look, God's grace has made you wealthy in Christ. And when you experience that grace, it ought to make you a generous person. It ought to make you the kind of person that doesn't cling to earthly riches and wealth, but the kind of person who gladly and freely gives it away so that others can experience God's grace. Last idea, number six our hope must be set on God, not money and not charity. Not money and not charity. listen to the scripture in 1 Timothy 6:17 Paul says as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy You probably heard about a man named Andrew Carnegie. He uh, he ran a steel company. Started this steel company. It was the most profitable company in the world. He started it as a very young man, and by the age of thirty three, he looked up and he realized he had the the most prosperous business on planet Earth, and he took some time off work at the age of 33 to reflect on his life and to think about his life and to think about what he had accomplished and what he wanted to accomplish. And he wrote some of his thoughts down, and we have them today, and I just want to read you some of the things he wrote down. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately, therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond the hope of permanent recovery." I will resign business at 35. You remember he was 33 when he wrote this. At 35. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons securing instruction and reading systematically. Would you be surprised to know that he worked longer than two more years? Sort of the old mindset of I'm not going to work forever, just two more years. Then I'll quit. Just a little bit more. And then I'll quit. And his goal in those two years and later was to be a man of character, of a man of morals. And while he has enough insight to realize that man has to serve someone, the old Bob Dylan song we talked about last week, you got to serve somebody. Man must have an idol. The alternative to Carnegie was just, I, I want to be more moral. I want to have better character. He worked longer than two years. He worked many, many more years. On the one hand, you can look at his life and you can say he became a great philanthropist. He gave away more money than you and I could ever imagine. He gave it away to libraries and many other causes that he thought were profitable. But he never came to the point in his life where he realized... Not only will idolatry degrade me, but it's dishonoring to God. And there's a world of difference in you being able to look at your life and, and being able to say, this idol is killing me, and then being able to turn the further step in saying, this idol is dishonoring to the one true God. I hope you realize as we talk about all of these specific idols, I hope that the Spirit of God is convicting you for the things in your life, the good things that you've allowed to become ultimate things. But I hope the alternative for you is not just to say, I don't want to be controlled by this, I want to be a person of good character. I hope the alternative to you is understanding the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And realizing that the Son of Man came to seek and save you. Not just to make you a person of better morals or better character, but to save you from your idolatry. To take the wrath of God that you and I deserve because we are idolaters. I hope you understand that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. Not just in being nice people, but in people who turn from our idols and trust in the one true God. I'm going to ask you to bow, and I want to pray for you as we finish this morning. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you call us away from idols that cannot save, that can only destroy, that will always disappoint us. Father, help us to understand that when you call us from idolatry is not to rob us of our fun or our pleasure, but is to give us true happiness and true pleasure and true joy. Father, help us to understand that, that those pleasures are found at your right hand, not in money, not in love, not in children, but in knowing you. Father, I pray for those in the room. And I pray for those who have set their hearts on good things and allowed them to become ultimate things. And I pray for your spirit to convict us. Father, we pray that grace would be planted in our hearts this morning just as it was planted in Zacchaeus' heart as he sat up in that tree. Father, we're thankful that Jesus came to seek us and to save us. Father and we pray uh, that as we sing one last song that your spirit would bring conviction your spirit would bring encouragement and that you would be honored in our worship we pray in Jesus name, amen